I am Eric Friedman, and this is Building the Machine. This is Building the Machine, a podcast with operators and entrepreneurs who are building the machine inside of a company to make the flywheel spin. Hello and welcome to this episode of Building the Machine. I'm Eric Friedman, and I'm here today with Evan Walden, who's the CEO of what is now called Monday.vc. That's right. Welcome. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, before we get started, I think it's helpful to give some context uh, of who you are and, and what you're building, and then we can get into it. Great. So maybe introduce yourself and, and what you've been building for the past how many years? Yeah, we started the company, technically we founded the company in June 2016. Uh, the, say the company really started getting momentum after we went through Techstars in 2017, January. Uh, right now, the way we talk about the business, we mostly work with investors, so venture capital funds mostly, and we help them connect talent to their portfolio companies. So there's kind of been a wave in the VC world of value add and wondering how, as an investor, I could add more value to my portfolio beyond just the financing. So we build tools that help them do that. So it sounds like that's a lot of the talk of uh, founder first and platform teams mm-hmm. for VCs. Yeah. And that's where you found a sweet spot. But um, as we've gotten to know each other, um, take me back to the beginning. And as you know, we like to talk about building the actual machine that builds the business. Where did you guys start and how did you end up here? <laughs> yeah, so my background... Uh, Actually, my first job out of college was selling pesticides for a big corporation. And long story short, I realized that that wasn't what I wanted to do and ended up starting a business with uh, one of my best friends from college to help people find more meaningful work. So I kind of took that personal experience and built my first company with that. And Monday VC was an extension of that idea. So we're basically saying, how can we help people find more meaning in their work? This is an epidemic all over the country, all over the world. Uh, how can we do that with software? So that's where we started. We got into Techstars more or less with that pitch of helping people find more meaningful jobs with software. And as we went through the program, we started really wondering, we had really big questions like, how are we going to build this talent marketplace? It's really hard to crack the chicken and the egg. We had a few ideas. One of the ideas was to build a job board product for investors since they have lots of portfolio companies that we ultimately wanted to work with. And since no one ever remembers to post their jobs on job boards, we would just scrape the jobs directly from the career page and put them on the the VC's website. Uh, So we built a few of these just as little growth hacks. And uh, as we were fundraising for the company after the the Techstars program, the investors were kind of like, yeah, you guys are cool. This is pretty early. I don't really know if we're interested in investing, but this is pretty cool. You guys have over here. How much do you charge for that? And we're like, oh, we were thinking about giving this to you for free, but now that you mentioned it, we, we charge X and we started just through a price point. I think we threw out like 200 bucks a month and they said yes. And Amazing. so we're like, okay, that's interesting. Um, and then over that summer, fundraising wasn't going great. More VCs were asking to buy this product. So we had a decision to make, which was kind of like, all right, as a founder, do I feel more confident in my ability to raise capital and, and, and get this fundraise done? Or do I feel more confident in my ability to sell? And my background had been in sales, so I felt more confident there. So my co-founder and I basically 
<laughs> moved to Canada, rented an Airbnb, kind of set up a war room, and just started reaching out to every investor we could find. That's amazing. Um, any parallels from the sales process on the pesticides world <laughs> to selling to VCs? Kind of. I mean, not so much in the in the the, the psychographic profile, but uh, yeah, I think what I learned there was just how to talk to anybody. What what empathy really means? It's like putting yourself in someone else's mindset. What are their problems? How do they spend their time? And what do they really care about? And then framing my language in that in that way. So today, the evolution of the product is really a platform tool for VC firms to bring value add to their portfolio companies, mm-hmm. bring in their job boards, and bring in other things. How, how has that evolved and, and sort of where are you guys headed? What's the new North Star? Yeah. And how does that dovetail with getting people to get up every day and get excited about where they work to the original you know, mission and vision? Yeah, so we, we still see, even at the beginning, we saw the VCs as more of a distribution channel for us to start working with companies. And uh, we ended up focusing there because it was working. We've now built a, not a huge business, but we've built a business there. We have about 200 customers, mostly VCs all over the world. Uh, and for us, the next big step is building products for the portfolio companies themselves uh, that help them get more referrals from their network. So when companies are hiring, obviously it's very difficult to find candidates. It's expensive and time-consuming. Uh, companies themselves are networks fundamentally. They have customers, they have employees, mentors, investors. Uh, so we want to help them tap those networks more efficiently for their hiring needs. Got it. And before we get into some of the nuts and bolts, can you give us a rundown of what your team looks like today, mm-hmm. you know, where they are and how how the setup works yeah. for Monday? Yeah, so we have 15 people full-time. It's a globally distributed team. And from the very beginning of the company, we decided that we wanted to be a globally distributed team. My co-founder's from Spain. We had a few folks in Spain that we really wanted to work with early days. And it definitely wasn't going to be realistic for them to move to the U.S. Uh, families or you know whatever. And so we ended up working with them and saying, hey, actually, this is really important. The future is remote. We want to be competitive in that future. So if we build this DNA from day one, then we can scale it over time. Uh, We see a lot of folks leaning into remote after they've already built kind of like a central location for their team. And that can be tough because it creates almost two different cultures. You have like the home team and then you have everyone who's kind of like the satellite team. And that's challenging. So we wanted to make sure that that didn't happen. So how do you think those relationships... And, and trust play a role in, in hiring? And how do you go about hiring a totally remote team? And we're going to get into the stack that you use. And I, I love talking about this because so many teams are either fully remote mm-hmm. or have a portion that's remote. And I think people want to know how do they build that type of an organization. But something that's important to you, I know, is the relationship you have with those potential employees and existing employees. Yeah. How do you think about that? Yeah, well, we can definitely talk about the stack. I think in terms of how we build the team, We've met everyone through referrals, and it's a, it's a powerful way to hire because I think when you get a referral from someone who knows you really well, who spent some time with you, they know what you care about, they know the culture of the team you're trying to build. There's all these little things that happen in the human brain that are very hard to turn into software. Like, hey, Eric, I, I know you. I know you'd like to work with this person. So that's how we've hired pretty much everyone, at least the early team. How do you do that with a remote team You know, where somebody's in another country, a thousand miles away? Yeah, it can be challenging. We, I think, were lucky because my co-founder Raul had a network in Spain. 
So we have a few folks there who we knew pretty well. And then just asking our friends, like, who's the most badass person you know at X? And then and that's how taking calls, man. <laughs> and actually, we had a we kind of fell into the strategy. I don't know if it was so intentional per se, but early on in the company, we were bootstrapping. So we we ran out of the Techstars money at the end of that summer. And What year was we this? Were, this was 2017. Okay. So the first month after we started selling, we made, I think it was about $20,000 of revenue, which was interesting. We didn't anticipate that that the customers we had were willing to pay up front. And that was huge because that gave us enough cash flow to basically keep going. Meaning were those ARR deals? Yeah. So, so we were just saying, hey, well, year. yeah, we were charging per month. And then someone was saying, someone gave us the idea, hey, you should, you should just ask if they want to pay annually. Just give them a little discount. So we just, we offered a discount. Everyone was like, yeah, we'll do that. And so and that, that helps a lot cash flow with cash flow. Gives you some balance to work with. Yeah. And, and so as we were growing, we couldn't really afford to hire full-time people. And this was a big mistake. I, well, that might be a strong way to put it, but it was a challenge we had in my first company. It was, we were only thinking about, okay, if we have a need for the business, we have to hire a full-time person. And then we have to make sure that person's satisfied. But what ends up happening is you're kind of, you're always pushing that edge and, and maybe you don't have enough resources to fully employ someone full time. And it puts a lot of stress on the business. So for, for Monday VC, when we started, we found people who were contractors or running their own business and we brought them on part time. And then as our business grew, we scaled them up more and more time. And eventually all of those early people ended up coming on full time to work for us. So they had already had a ton of experience working remote. They were super entrepreneurial. They'd been running their own company, they had clients. They were able to self-manage really well. And that formed a very tight culture around accountability and people who already knew what they were doing when it came to remote work. Uh, and it was easy to find them because they were marketing themselves to us in, in various ways. Do you still hire that way now post-15? You're still looking for those part-time? The full-time, the full-time needs are more clear now. So it's easier to, to say, okay, we actually do need someone full-time. Um, but occasionally we'll bring on contractors if we see a role where we're like, okay, we're not really ready to bring this on full-time or it's a really discreet project. And then that helps us build a relationship. So I think we've, I think we've hired seven people that way who are now full-time. This is, this is great because there's a lot of folks out there that are bootstrapping their company, trying to figure out how to bring on those first hires, and then also trying to understand what stack should they use for a remote team to mm-hmm. effectively communicate, to translate the vision of what the founders are doing, and then also make people feel involved and get them aware of what's happening at the highest levels and on the, on the front lines. Would love to get into how you solve all those problems and maybe some of the software and tools you guys use to, to make that flywheel spin. Yeah, I love that. That's so important. I think when we were early on, and, and this gets into the different life stages that entrepreneurs are in when they're starting companies, because some of the things I'm about to say may not be possible for certain folks. But for us, we were traveling a lot. We were single and had the ability to do that. So we spent a lot of time in person, even though folks were in different countries. Uh, I think meeting up in person regardless is really important. So even now we have a kind of a mandatory once a year team summit, we're bringing everyone together in the same place. We're flying people in, we're paying for it. It's, it's an investment, but it's so worth it. Um, in the early days though, I think when you're just trying to get something off the ground, it's a little bit different than as the company grows and things like 
documentation and communication start to break in in new ways. Um, we've always had quarterly summits when people can be in person, they're in person, but usually they're remote. And we use a tool called Miro that is amazing. It's, it's basically like a virtual whiteboard, mm-hmm. but it's a way for us to be doing anything from like a facilitating a meeting um, to just kind of like working collaboratively and putting things up on a board together that we can see in real time. And that's been a game changer. There's, there's been a few virtual whiteboard tools over the years we've used, but Miro is the best. Uh, also, Coda has been a game changer for us. Uh, and for people who don't know about Coda, the way I usually describe Coda is like Notion kind of started with the docs and Airtable started with the tables. And Coda was in private beta for three years trying to do both at the same time. <laughs> and I think that was that was tough for them at the beginning, but now they're at the point where They've been doing this for a really long time and the integrations and the way that the docs and the, and the tables kind of all work together is amazing. We built quite a few things on that. So I want to unpack a lot of that. Uh, first of all, how long are the summits where everyone gets together and you have that in-person FaceTime once per year? Yeah, we, we do a week and we used to do the remote summits for a week and pack the week with content. So it was kind of just known that everyone was basically taking a half of a week in terms of their other work. Uh, we just experimented with this quarter's summit, uh, planning the sessions out over a two-month period. There was some tension around folks having a hard time blocking a whole week. It's just like a lot of content. Um, and that worked okay. We're still, we're still figuring it out. But the type of content we usually go over, there's some things that we do the same every time. So we'll do like uh, like finances, share where the company's at. That's all transparent for us. Uh, we'll talk about OKRs. We'll do planning. We'll do kind of like a retro of the last quarter and then planning for the next quarter. And that's pretty much the same every time. And then we'll also insert uh, different strategic conversations we need to have based on needs. So over the last two summits, we've been talking about core values. What are our core values? What are people's opinions on the ideas that we have as founders and how can we collaborate to find something that feels really good? Uh, So once we get that really nailed down, we may not have whole sessions about it in the future, or we may, depending on the need. Got it. And if somebody new joins, I'm assuming you get them up to speed. Where does that information live? And in what software system do you say, hey, here's where we can take a look at our core values. Let me share this link with you. We now try to put everything in Coda. So Coda is kind of like the single source of truth for the information about the company. And we've even, I mean, we do pretty much everything you would do on Jira in Coda. We're starting to do everything you do on Asana in Coda. We're trying to bring everything to Coda because if everything is in that system, then it can all talk to each other. So if you're looking at a requirement, you can click into that and actually see the documentation instead of having to jump somewhere else. Um, that's connected all the way down to the to the, the onboarding documents. When you go to create a brand new doc that you want to share with Raul or one of the employees, where does that happen? Uh, depends. So we have, the way we think about the organizational design is instead of kind of like a traditional hierarchy, we think of it in areas of the company. So we have a growth area, product area, operations area. And within each area, we have what we call functions. And then each function has a sponsor is responsible for setting the objectives and working with the owner. The second role is responsible for delivering the outcomes and then the contributors who are supporting the sponsor and the owner. 
Um, so I went into that because that's also how our Coda docs are organized. So if I wanted to create a new Coda doc in the growth area around account management, I could find in the nested area where that lives and create the doc. And then everyone's kind of shared, automatically getting notified based on their work stream. It seems incredibly organized. And these mind maps of how you organize the company around these three spheres, so to speak, <laughs> seems very structured and, and well put together. But can you talk about the evolution of how you got there? <laughs> I mean, it's all work in progress. I think the our, our goal is always to communicate the best we can and then just recognize that everyone's always doing their best. So even though we say, you know, there's very clear areas, there's very clear functions within the areas, there's very clear objectives and key results for each of those functions, it's really hard to keep track of all that at the same time. So we started with I mean, OKRs, is like a great example. So many people talk about OKRs. It's really hard. Yeah, and when did you start to instrument it, OKRs? Because that's a tough question. Usually it's post 20 people. Yeah. You guys did it early. We did it really early. And a lot of this was learnings we had from our previous companies of just saying the earlier you start talking about these things, socializing them as ideas, the easier it is to grow into them. So it's for us, it's not about saying, you know, like kind of shaming someone for not getting their OKR done, or there's really not a like a punishment feedback loop. It's just saying, okay, these are the OKRs for this quarter. These make sense. Let's do our best to make sure we're tracking here. And as the company's gotten bigger, we've gotten better at creating documentation around the OKRs, like, you know, weekly, monthly calls, checking in on them. Um, but yeah, every time I talk to CEOs, it's like, OKRs, man. Zooming out to 100,000 feet for a moment, for those who don't know, OKR stands for Objectives and Key Results, uh, which, which has a storied history. We could probably do a whole episode on what instrumenting those look like, but it's basically a way of tracking, measuring, and keeping people accountable to the things that you are trying to achieve, usually transparently shared with the entire exec team and employee set. Is that how you approach them? For sure. And it's also something we learned at Techstars. The, the Techstars team was incredible at teaching some of these tools and frameworks, which I didn't expect going through Techstars, uh, but but we learned a lot. And the one of the things I love about the idea of the objective and key result, the key result is something that has to be measurable. So like divisible by a number. It can't just be, well, we hope that you know, we hire this person next month. If you're going to create a key, if the objective is to hire a person next month, then the key result should be, we're going to interview at least 10 people so that you can look and see, number one, you can create a rate-based goal throughout the period of time. And two, you can reflect back and see how you actually did. So it's not binary. We did it or we didn't do it. You can see that progress. And I think even just mentally and emotionally, it's it's important to track progress. And as a small company, before you really hit product market fit, that's one of the hardest things to just see progress. Like I remember talking to my roommate one time about this and he was just saying, you know, just go to the gym and work out and just track the numbers of pounds that you're lifting more than you did last week just to see progress. Because if you're an entrepreneur trying to do something new, you're just smashing into a wall constantly. But you have to have something in your life where you're tracking that progress or else it's, it's super draining. And this is a way to do that. Yeah. Um, you guys have obviously hit some pretty major key milestones, 200 plus customers now, uh, a million in ARR, a 15-person team, you know, these things are codified and probably help your story and both attract talent and give some comfort to those future customers. Hey, this is a stable base and an amazing platform. How many of these things were instrumented in those OKRs or, 
or key performance indicators versus this is where we found ourselves organically. <laughs> yeah, I think that they were they were directionally on base, but I don't know. The, the honest answer is that I think we all just really care about doing a good job and we care about each other and we care about doing our best. So we just constantly hold each other accountable to doing our best every day. And if each person's showing up every day doing their best, then, you know, you need to be aligned in the vision. You need to be tracking things and making sure everything's on the same page. But I find that to be more motivating than looking at a three month out objective sometimes. How do you measure the health of the business? I mean, there's so many things going on, right? It could be like jobs placed Mm -hmm. from the VC, the portfolio company matching with someone, you know, obviously the revenue job boards being live. I think a lot of people that listen to this show are part of the exec team or the operators inside who are trying to instrument the analytics to show incremental growth versus, and sometimes exponential growth. So it would be great to know and uncover how you measure the health of the business and not just in a revenue sense, but on, on the technical side, you know, what's a metric of success that you want a number to go up, or perhaps it's a dashboard number that you want to stay at 0%, which is no downtime, right? Hard to achieve, but a, a goal nonetheless. Totally. Yeah. I think, um, it's, it's easy to get caught up in many metrics. And so we try to really simplify it. Like for us, the concept of one metric that matters is really interesting. So for each individual, what's the one metric that matters for the company? What's the one metric that matters? Uh, for us right now, we're talking a lot about introductions made on our platform. Our second product is, is kind of like a multiplayer CRM experience for the, the network of the venture fund. And that metric really matters. If that's going well, then all the other secondary things are probably also going well. Um, I think there's also, it's also important to think about leading indicators versus lagging indicators. So churn is a great example. That's a lagging indicator. Uh, maybe it's a leading indicator on how well a product's going to do, but um, you know, by the time you lose a customer, they're gone. So I think the leading indicator for me in that area of the business would be customer support tickets or even just how stressed out is my team member who's working in that area? And how many times per week am I getting looped in on something? And that's that's an opportunity for me to take a step back and say, okay, do we need to make hire here? Is someone confused? Like, is, is the product team and the growth team not connecting over this thing? Or is this documented anywhere? Um, yeah, if you're just looking at lagging indicators, you can end up in a in a world of pain. <laughs> that's amazingly helpful because I think a lot of folks don't know how to measure these things. And I think when everyone's not in the same room, it's like, what's, what can I look at and who can I talk to? And, and just to rearticulate the point you made, it's introductions made through the platform because mm-hmm. then you know that the rest of that system is working. Yeah. Like we could track how many people signed up, but that doesn't really matter actually because right. the product, the value we're trying to deliver is people getting connected and that's the thing that people are paying for. So we could have a thousand people sign up, but if no one's actually requesting introductions and getting connected, then we're not delivering any value. We could even have logins as the metric. But again, like unless people are connecting, it doesn't really matter. And if people are connecting, then all those other things have happened. Right. Um, you know, we kind of talked a little bit about how you keep the remote team aligned. Um, do you guys use any sort of 
real-time chat app? We use Slack. Okay. Um, so I mentioned we're about 15 people. I think we're starting to hit the point in the company where everyone isn't always doing the same thing. It's like, I've heard a funny analogy of entrepreneurship where at the early stages, it's like little kids soccer where everyone's just chasing the ball <laughs> around the field. Right. I think as the company matures, like there's, there's different departments, so to speak. And you have to keep an eye on like, is, is communication getting siloed? How are we connecting with each other? So Slack, I mean, Slack is obviously a game changer in remote work, but at the same time, uh, it can create a lot of distraction. And so we would hope that everyone has the discipline to not get distracted, but that's a really hard expectation. And also it's unclear sometimes on Slack what's important, what's not important. You kind of have to read everything in order to know. Especially those random channels. Yeah, right. It's like, okay, I go on a Slack, I have 50 messages. Sure. How do I prioritize that? So we're starting to evolve the way that we think about internal team communication. And we just started using a tool called Guru. Oh, yeah. You've heard of this. What does that do? It's essentially a, a, like an internal knowledge management platform for teams. Hmm. So if someone has a question and they put it on Slack, number one, like how are we keeping track of that? How do we know if that question's answered? Right. And number two, what if someone else has the same question next week but doesn't realize it got asked already in a channel they're not a part of? So if all this is happening on Guru, they have a great search engine where you can kind of ask the question to, to the Guru platform. And if it's been answered already... It'll show you where that is. And if it hasn't been, then you can ask it on Slack and then document it in Guru. It sounds amazing because there's almost been entire companies built around trying to answer the age old, you know, whether it's 15 people or 1,500 people, what's the internal wiki and Mm -hmm. knowledge base or FAQ that everyone can reference? And it seems like so many of those have had a false start. Um, This seems like it answers that question of how do you collate questions and answers and then resurface them to people because nobody ever uses that system. Right. But if it's actually integrated into the live chat, it's actually pretty interesting. It's super cool. I mean, it integrates with Slack. It also has a great feature where you can create a reminder for the person who wrote, they call them cards. Okay. So the answers to questions. You can, I can create a reminder that says, in three months, ping me again, just reminding me this card exists, and then I can check off if it's still up-to-date and relevant. Because the big problem with knowledge management systems is that everything decays and it's just totally irrelevant in six months and you got to kind of do it over again, which is unrealistic, or people don't use it. Right. That's so the- we're hopeful. I mean, we just started using this a couple of weeks ago, so it's, it's still pretty new, but it's been a really big pain point as the team's grown. And actually, another thing, this is something that was a game changer for us. Uh, we brought in a product coach. So this is a woman who's been doing Agile and kind of teaching teams how to how to run scrum practices and just how to how to run product teams in a healthy way. And she came in because one of our team members was really excited about becoming a product owner, but she didn't have that background. So we said, yeah, you know, if you're gonna work your ass off, then we want to give you this opportunity. And she has totally. That's amazing. And so we brought in this coach just to kind of bolster her information. And the coach comes in, she looks around, she's kind of like, okay. We have some work to do here. You know, there's there's a lot of places where we could be more efficient as a team. So she starts making these recommendations, and it's been great because it really pushed us to it. It kind of like turned the lights on mm-hmm. in a way. Like everyone in a company is dealing with pain because that's just part of the deal. But I think it sometimes takes an external person to come in and say, 
hey, did you know that most companies your size actually don't do that? <laughs> you should do it this way. It's like, oh, great. Now we just do it perspective that way. from somebody on the outside. Yeah. It's interesting. I was going to get into what's, what's not working. Mm-hmm. And maybe she shed a, a light on some of those things. The communication thing is super hard. And I think it's even harder with a remote team. In person, this is, uh, this is almost disguised in a way. Because you can walk up and say, hey, Eric, can you help me with this thing? Sure. And you're like, sure. But also you were doing something. <laughs> so you got distracted. But that doesn't really show up anywhere. And it's hard to measure that. So I think with remote, it can get a bad rap for things like that. Um, for making communication hard. But I think it actually pushes us harder to think about documentation and how we communicate together. So right now we're, we just went through a whole project really of saying, okay, what are the working agreements that we have as a team about how we communicate? Where do we communicate about this thing? If I see a bug in the product, where do I put that? And how does that go to the product team and actually get prioritized? So on the growth team, how do I trust this is getting prioritized and how do I get a feedback loop on the product team? How do I know what you're even talking about is the bug and how do I make sure I'm not getting distracted from the things that I'm planning? So that's an example. But we have five or six systems that we use to keep track of communication in the company. And we're coming back around and making those agreements again in a very defined way so that everyone can look at it, everyone can sign off on it, and everyone has permission to hold each other accountable. Uh, so instead of saying, oh man, I don't know if I'm kind of allowed to tell this guy he's doing something he shouldn't be doing, you can just say, hey, like we made this agreement here and, and here's where it is. And I noticed that you didn't do that. Where does that agreement live? Coda. In Coda. So it says, hey, Eric signed up to do this thing and Evan knows about it and everyone can kind of see and here's a date and a key person. Yeah, it's like the Ten Commandments. Yeah, so that's where everything <laughs> lives. Everything, yeah, we try it. to, at this point, we're trying to put everything in Coda. Got it. Because they can talk, they can talk, things in Coda can talk to each other in ways that like Google Docs or Excel wouldn't be able to do. Amazing to hear. So as we, we, we wrap, it sounds like you guys have really found your footing and are headed <laughs> in, well... You yeah. tell me if that's that's true. Yeah, I mean, um, it's all relative, but yeah, we're we're having fun. Where do you see this going, and and what's the evolution of this look like? You know, as you think about um, the end of next year, uh, which will be 2020. If you look back on on all of 2020, you know, mm-hmm. what what do you want to have accomplished, and and where do you see this this next 12 months going? Yeah, well, I think in terms of our vision, we see people just dramatically underutilized when it comes to their own network as an asset. So it's hard for me to tap my own network, even see inside of it. It's hard for me to tap my network for myself. It's hard for me to tap my network for you if I want to help you. So long-term, we get really excited about building tools that help people make and receive better connections, better introductions. Uh, In terms of the next 12 months, we're really excited about our next product, which will be helping companies get more referrals from their network. So that'll be making new hires. And that's probably going to be our biggest challenge. We have, we have these products today that are getting product market fit. They're starting to, to feel a little bit more mature. So the scaling process looks like you know, making sure the system can actually handle growth. So if we 3x the amount of new customers we have per month, can our customer support handle that? Can our account management handle that? Can our sales team handle that? Can the product team handle that? Then we're also talking about doing something brand new. So that team works very different. When you have emerging work, they need to move super fast. The cycles are more tight. They need to be uh, able to do customer discovery. They have to have 
safety around failure. So how do we allow people on the team to work in that way while also having probably the majority of the team working on a product that is growing and scaling? Uh, that's, that'll be our 2020 question. <laughs> so if anyone has any insight on that, please shoot me a note. You just kind of tipped, tipped your hat on, on something that, that, that I think about all the time, which, which kind of reminds me of how to actually get the information that is locked away, whether it's in LinkedIn or in email, which kind of talks about a CRM or like a personal CRM. That for me kind of feels like a white whale. I've been searching for a long time to find something that actually can be used for that to understand last touch point, last talk point, and last communication point, and actually what someone does in a show versus tell way of like LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to hear you talk about it because I've been searching for something like that, but I think it's different for everyone. Yeah. And that, that, that solution is, is probably out there, but um, if you're not doing sales calls every day, uh, it's hard to keep track of friendships, professional relationships, those partnerships, and those people that might be right for a role, which is arguably where you're, you know, focused on today. Um, but it's certainly in there. Yeah. And to unearth that is actually pretty valuable. It's tough. I think, I think a lot of people have tried to work on this idea, like at the, at the high level. And one of the biggest challenges I've seen people run into is just the business model. I see a lot of people going B2C with it. And obviously the pain exists. Um, but I get really curious about going B2B first and building a company around that and then starting to provide B2C features and eventually B2C version of the product. Uh, I haven't really seen that approach. I've seen it in other industries, but I haven't seen it here. And I, I wonder if that's almost a more sustainable pathway because to your point, people need different things. It's a really complicated product if you want to get it right. So take some time. Well, I appreciate the time you spent with us. Uh, best of luck as you go out and achieve these goals for next year. And Evan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for your questions. Thank you for listening to this episode of Building the Machine. I'm your host, Eric Friedman. It would help us tremendously if you were to subscribe to this podcast and rate us in iTunes and share with your friends. Until next time, thank you. Thank you.